Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined by Nizar Hassan. As always, Nizar, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm I'm good. We we've got a lot to talk about this week. We're 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 focusing sort of on education. It's it's exam time. We had the Brevet exams just last week. We got the baccalaureate exams coming up. And for those of you who don't know about Lebanon's education system, basically Brevet exams are like middle school going into high school, and then baccalaureate are like high school going into whatever else. And these are like sort of notorious exams as well, right? Yeah, so stressful. Everyone hates them. But at the same time, they're also well known for like being, I don't know, just hotbeds of cheating and like, yeah, but this not, year, not, not, it's not like the SAT exams or anything like that, you know? It's, yeah, true. But this year they introduced cameras. So surveillance cameras in, in, in schools to monitor students while doing the exams. In, in, in case you, the, the students weren't, uh, you know, on edge enough. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so brevet exams were last Wednesday, um, and the baccalaureate exams are coming up on Tuesday uh, of this week. If, and then there are makeup exams, right? D- during the summer, there's another round. In case you fail, don't worry, you can sit for it again. But yeah, th- this is uh, also sort of our main topic for this week. Not not for high schoolers or middle schoolers or anything like that, but for what happens afterwards. Higher education, we're going to be getting into that a lot more, and especially like the, the, the politics, what's going on with Lebanese University and the strike there, and what's going on outside of Lebanese University, and we, we see sort of like there's sort of a squeeze happening uh, mm-hmm. for sort of political and sectarian reasons, so we'll get more into that later. Uh, but first, the news Big news this week, Nizar Zaka was released. Uh, we, we talked about this last week. It did happen. He arrived in Beirut on Tuesday. Um, Abbas Ibrahim, who's the head of general security, had gone to Iran and sort of like brought him back. When, whenever you see Abbas Ibrahim involved in something, by the way, it, it usually means that like, oh, oh, something's big is happening here. Yeah. He's he's sort of known as a heavyweight. Uh, when he is involved, usually things happen. Um, and if he says, I'm no longer involved in this, then it means probably things aren't going to happen anymore. Uh, if you <laughs> He's a deal maker, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so he was involved with this. Uh, and, and he said, because there were all these rumors, you know, floating around there, like, oh, it was because of Hezbollah that uh, uh, Zeka was released. He said, no, 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 it wasn't him. It was Aoun. Uh, you know, and who knows what the actual truth is, but the, the, the line that everybody's sticking with is that this was an official request from the president of the Lebanese Republic to Iran, and they released him based on that. And he arrived in a private jet and met with Aoun. So Aoun is clearly giving him a lot of attention and probably partly saying, I'm the one who brought it back, brought him back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, In other sort of international news, Lebanon is not going to go to this uh, conference on Palestine in Bahrain later this month. I mean, even the Palestinians aren't going... (laughs) So I it's not the conference on Palestine it's the conference on how to end Palestine maybe. Yeah, <laughs> right. How, how to sell Palestine out, right? Yeah. yeah. So surprisingly enough the the Palestinians aren't going. Uh uh and 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 uh this week Gibran Basile confirmed that Lebanon would not be going either. Mm-hmm. Um speaking of Basile, he's saying a lot these days. So n- not this weekend that just ended but the weekend before that he opened his mouth about foreign laborers in Lebanon. And he basically said that, oh, you you need to hire, you know, just Lebanese people, not foreigners. This is something that is common in the FPM rhetoric, uh, in Basile's rhetoric. And, he, he, you know, he, he sort of cloaked it, uh, what he was saying, is saying, you know, be it Syrian or Palestinian or French or Saudi or Iranian or American. Lebanese above all. Of, of course, he doesn't really mean all of these 
other <laughs> nationalities. That's sort of you know like a, a, a way of making what he the the point that he is making to his constituents at, at very least. This is how it's seen, right? Like, oh, he's saying all of these other things in order to make this idea of, you know, anti-Syrian and anti-Palestinian sentiment, you know, more acceptable. Yeah. To avoid, you know, the the accusation that he's scapegoating Palestinians and Syrians and also to show, look, look at these big nationalities that I'm mentioning, these people who have very big proxy interests in Lebanon. I'm challenging all of them. But it was not a very smart thing to do, really. Yeah, the, I mean, he saw quite a bit of a pushback from a lot of people, especially from the the Saudis, uh, and not nothing official, I don't think, out, out of Saudi Arabia. But uh, there there were a lot of people saying, "Hey, there are a lot of Lebanese here in Saudi. Maybe they should go back home, and maybe we should give these jobs to Saudis." Yeah, we had some reactions, but we don't know if there's anything confirmed of actual companies deciding that. But anyway, people were very worried about this. A lot of people we know were very concerned uh, just because, you know, uh, he's the foreign minister, you know, he's not only a a political party leader, he's the foreign minister. And when he's saying these things, he's affecting diplomatic relations possibly and uh, and people we have 200,000 people or something like that. And in that area. So if you are risking the livelihood of a lot of people, they will be concerned. So we had a petition launched against Basile saying uh, that what he's saying is just reflecting his own personal view rather than, uh, you know, uh, us as Lebanese citizens. And uh, by the time we're recording this, around 19,000 people have have signed it. You know, these are people from anti-racist and activist backgrounds, but also people from, you know, anti-FBM or backgrounds or whatever. People who have a high sense of uh, solidarity with Syrians and Palestinians especially. But the scary thing about this is that he's not only saying these things, this inflated kind of inflammatory rhetoric about about foreign labor. The youth section of the FPM was on the streets pressuring shops that are owned by Syrians and shops that employ Syrian workers. And going to shops that don't and saying, like, congratulations, you're not employing Syrians. And, like, uh, chanting, you know, the Lebanese anthem in front of a Syrian restaurant, uh, doing uh, what what is basically a Nazi salute, but a lot of people don't know that, so they just do it while chanting the anthem. But it's just ridiculous what's happening. They put all of their energy into this battle, and it's increasing the the amount of hatred and, and, you know, hate speech against the Syrians in public discourse in a way that I haven't seen in a long time. And uh, also the economy ministry launched just a couple of weeks ago a, a, a crackdown on Syrian businesses or businesses that uh, employ Syrians and other foreigners uh, who may not be properly documented. Uh, and of course, the economy ministry, that that's an FPM uh, ministry these days. And uh, the labor ministry launched a few days ago also a campaign against employing non-Lebanese and uh, you know, calling on institutions to to only employ wor- foreign workers in the sectors that they can work in, because Syrians are only limited to three sectors. Um, right, but th- that's interesting because the labor ministry is not FPM, but it is Lebanese forces who are you know in competition with the FPM for the Christian vote, and so th- this this issue plays well amongst the Christian base. Yeah. Uh, very quickly. Uh, I just want to note that we're we're going to have a medium cabinet on Tuesday, but this is not going to be sort of the cabinet meeting that we were waiting for, uh, according to uh, reporting. Right now, we're waiting on a bunch of like administrative appointments, and supposedly this is the, it, like reading the tea leaves. It, it's become a lot more clear over the last couple of weeks that 
all of the problems between the future movement and the FPM, the future movement and the PSP, the Lebanese forces in the FPM, it seems as though all of these, you know, escalations in rhetoric that we've seen over the past two or three weeks, maybe the underlying problem here is actually these appointments. And and it seems as though there's a struggle over who's going to make the list and who's not going to make the list and how many of, you know, from this party and how many from this party, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that isn't quite over yet because supposedly in the cabinet meeting that's going to be held on Tuesday morning, they're not going to discuss appointments. But those appointments may be discussed at another cabinet meeting later in the week or at, at a future one. But point being, maybe that all of the tensions are not quite over yet. Everything is not settled on this yet. So there may still be some sort of escalations or some people uh, you know, speaking out, attacking each other uh, within the political class. And uh, speaking of cabinet and FPM ministers uh, in particular, our energy minister, Nada Bustani, came out and said something kind of weird the other day. Uh, she, she said, uh, expect more power cuts uh, during the summer, which is normal. In summer, electricity usage ramps up, and, and so there are just more power cuts in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. But the weird thing is that she didn't blame it on summer. She blamed it on budget cuts to her ministry, which don't exist. <laughs> like, if you look at the the budget that was passed by cabinet, which is now uh, in parliament, her, her ministry actually gets an increase in funding this year. And so we have no idea what she was talking about. Uh, I mean, it's extraordinarily bizarre uh, and, 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 and really kind of really kind of strange because Inada Bustani has a an image uh, of, of being sort of like a, a a technical person and like knowing what she's talking about, which I love, but it seems as though maybe in this case, she started to like really move into the politician's role uh, of like fighting for a a greater share of the budget, but just didn't have the numbers on her side. Or if she Mm -hmm. does have numbers on her side, she has not made clear, you know, what line in the budget are you talking about? That's being cut. That's going to suddenly spike the the number of hours uh, over the summer that we're going to have electricity cuts. Uh, So hopefully, Bustani gets back to like the technical side of things and and backing things up and and like having clear answers and everything because this seems to me like it was really sort of putting your foot in your mouth. Yeah. Uh, and we also had news on that other big Lebanese issue that we're always talking about the trash file this week. We we actually had a couple of things come out. So the uh, environment minister Fadi Zursati, also FPM, created the solid waste roadmap. Uh, it's this 10-year plan, and he submitted it to Hariri on June 3rd. My colleague at the Daily Star, Temur Asari, got his hands on it this week. It's short. It's uh, two pages plus another 11 pages of annexes, but it does it does a number of sort of remarkable things. It sets sites for two in- incinerators, one in Der Ammar in the north, and another one either in Zahrani or, Z- or Zhiye. And, and that's really remarkable just on its own because the issue of incinerators in Lebanon is a very touchy one. It's very controversial. There are a lot of people who say, no, we, we cannot do this. We cannot have incinerators in Lebanon because we don't have the controls in place. We don't have the regulatory, you know, the, 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 that sort of institutional uh, strength that you need to have strong oversight when you have sort of like a dangerous thing going on, like burning things, you know. And then producing toxic waste. Right, right, exactly. Also, it it says that the Burshabud landfill should be expanded, um, which is something that like it's just going to happen anyway, despite the fact that nobody really wants it to happen. Uh, but but there, it, it seems as though there's no other option really out there that ever everybody sort of decided. Oh, this is going to happen. It seems. 
And and then the, the other thing that it does sort of remarkably is it reopens Nami uh, or, or it says Nami should be reopened, which is sort of like a bizarre pie in the sky thing. I don't see how Nami ever gets reopened, but it, it does say we should reopen it. In addition to that, it, it has like sort of the usual stuff of, oh, well, we need a new sanitary landfill other than Nami, like a real one. And, you know, we need to do waste sorting and we need to introduce like, you know, some sort of taxes, fees and stuff like that to, to pay for uh, waste management in the country. But it, as far as specifics goes, I mean, it it's so short that it can't really go through everything uh, and, and explain how all of this is going to work. Yeah, but it's clear that it's the least popular plan ever for solid waste management. You know, if 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 you have been involved in this in any way, you know that the things that people hate most in Lebanon are Naami landfill, Burj Hamoud landfill, and the most the thing they're worried most about is the you know the mahari, the incinerators. So the plan is basically all of them together. I don't see how this is gonna pass without like major backlash. But the bad news for most of us is that you know if you're living in Ashrafiyya or Burj Hamoud or Dawra, you will be smelling more and more of this horrible smell every day if you're living in Shwayfet or uh, in the coastal Shuf areas you will be smelling the Naame again if they reopen it it's just you know things that people are have been demanding and protesting for years it doesn't seem to have gone into account at all uh and, and we also had one other thing uh happen on this front and that is a the, the environment ministry hired a consultant <laughs> to get to the bottom of the the stench that is in Beirut right now um, and surprise, funniest surprise, story of the week. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Like, oh, I, I mean, I, I'm sure all of our listeners can sort of guess what what the answer is. Oh, well, there, there are two sites. I'll give you a hint. Two sites. <laughs> one of them is around the landfill we were just talking about, Burj Hamoud. The other one is around another landfill, Costa Brava, right next to the airport. Which, and, and, and in fairness, these areas also have like slaughterhouses and, and stuff. Like, there's a lot of nasty stuff at both of these sites. Uh, or, or very close in, in these areas, right? Uh, but yeah, basically uh, trash and sewage and, you know, slaughterhouses and, and all of this stuff combines to make terrible stenches. And so supposedly they're going to try to use some sort of treatment or I don't know if it's a masking product or if it actually treats things from a French company called Faudet to to try to treat this and make, I, I, I don't know if they can like choose the scent that they want. I don't know if it's like a Glade plug-in or something or i <laughs> imagine like, if it all smells like lavender now <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah like I'd, I'd, I'd like a nice vanilla smell here like that'd be nice yeah all right and and so on that note right <laughs> that's that's act one let's move on uh we our, our main topic this week is higher education um and and what's going on i mean the, the lu professors have been striking for a little while, and and that's all come to a head in the past week and in the week coming up. So so this is really sort of a timely time, I think, to take a look at Lebanese University and higher education in general in Lebanon, because it's actually a lot more political than you'd think. Yeah, um, to start with what's happening now, uh, there's a strike that has been going on for around one month and a half now. So no courses in the Lebanese University since the beginning of May. And uh, it's basically against public cuts. We'll go over the the, prote- the demands and the motives. Uh, but it has been receiving a lot of negative coverage because students want to finish their academic year. And this strike is kind of preventing that from happening. And also the politicians have been very kind of fiercely 
criticizing this strike. Hariri said it's a shameful thing to do, to, you know, to deprive students from the right to go to class. Uh, Basile said, I wish I was in the education ministry so that I would educate those teachers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Shahayev, the education minister, uh, was more diplomatic about it. Uh, so he said that he's been trying to end the strike and he's been you know, carrying out some negotiations with the League of Full-Time Professors, which is the organization that's basically doing the strike. And he has basically failed. But yeah, to understand why why the teachers have been striking, it's basically primarily because of the budget. Like the budget is the only timely trigger that has uh, that has caused these strikes. Uh, and basically, the budget reduces the allocation of funds to the Lebanese University, which is the only public university in Lebanon, by twenty seven million dollars from uh, last year to this year. And uh, this will affect, you know directly affect the research capacity, the facility maintenance and improvements, scholarships given to students, and a lot of other things. So it's a very serious cut. And also they are protesting against the cuts to te- affecting teachers directly and their livelihood, including uh, cuts to retirement salaries and raising the, the, requ- the required period of service in the Lebanese University, like of work, in order to get this retirement salary. So they're increasing it from 20 to 25 years, which means people who have less than 25 and are retiring now will will, will lose their retirement salary. And that's, they estimate it to be around 500 professors. And also they cut 10% of the state's contribution to the mutual fund of these teachers. And that will mean that the teachers will lose 20% of their educational support benefits, like the benefits they get to support the education of their children. And most importantly, you know, apart from these timely demands and the budget, the horrible budget cuts, they're protesting because it's been so long that the, you know, the ruling class has been completely ignoring their demands. We have the problem, a big problem going back for years now um, with the contract employment. You know, a lot of teachers were employed in the Illuminese University through contracts um, that basically are not full-time teachers. They are they are contracted without the normal process of how you would become a university professor. And this is mostly, we've talked about this before, mostly a clientelist tool, you know, to employ people who support you politically in the Lebanese University to give them this job. The problem with those, apart from being, a lot of them not having the qualifications, um, to be university teachers not having the experience or not having the required degrees, also is the fact that their livelihoods is never like, secured because they get their salaries in very irregular ways or they get them every a lot like after a long period so for example if you're working there every day you're teaching you might not get a salary for a whole two years from the Lebanese university wow so that's insane yeah. so you have to go get another job and it's impossible for you to have financial security in this situation. So they've been demanding for years that this should be changed by eliminating this weird thing called, you know, just contract employment and have the normal process happening for everyone. And those who are already teaching contract employment, if they meet the qualifications, then bring them in as full-time or as officially employed professors or teachers. And if they are not, then let them go. But this situation is unbearable. So this is the background for the strike. Uh, what happened this week is that, or last week, is that on Thursday, there was a meeting between the politicians and the teachers. And after the meeting, the politicians were more optimistic than teachers. Uh, teachers were saying, you know, we didn't reach any deal. And the politicians were saying, we're looking at the end of the strike soon. And what was happening behind the stage is that the politicians were telling them, we will put all the pressure we can put in order to end the strike. So you might as well just, you know, accept it and make it an official decision. Because 
Shortly after that, two days after that, on Saturday, the executive committee of the League of Teachers met and they decided to end the strike or to halt the strike starting next Thursday. And this was against the, the, you know, the original decision of carrying out the strike because nothing really changed. And why they voted to end the strike is really only because of political influence, mostly because of political influence, because there was a big, big hype around it. Like after the meeting with the politicians, everyone was saying there's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure to end the strike. Please come and support us, come and protest with us and, and you know, show the solidarity we need to, to carry on with the decision. But it didn't happen. And uh, the representatives or the teachers who are affiliated with political parties in, uh, in the executive committee, specifically the Future Movement, the Lebanese Forces, Amal Movement, voted consistently, all of them, against the strike, like to end the strike. While uh, Hezbollah's, uh, while the Hezbollah-affiliated members were divided, and the independents obviously voted for the continuation of the strike, and so did the PSP, which, by the way, is uh, has an official like decision to end the strike because the education minister is a PSP person and Jumblat has said, please, let's end the strike. But still, the PSP person voted against it. So it's interesting. So now what's happening is this is the official decision to, st- to end the strike on, on Thursday, uh, at least temporarily. But then the representatives council, which is kind of the parliament or the congress of this league, will meet on Tuesday. And if they vote by two thirds, they can overturn the decision. And also they can pass a motion to bring it back to the General Assembly, which is, according to the bylaws of the League, the ultimate authority which decides on this. Um, so we might have a change of, of course in that sense. But the, the, the interesting thing about the strike for me is that it brought back a lot of you know important demands, but also showed very strong like student mobilization and kind of persistent student mobilization in support of the teachers and the demands that concern the Lebanese University in general. And uh, they have been quite political in this mobilization, kind of not only opposing the other rhetoric, the dominant rhetoric, which is that students are just so angry at teachers and just want to go back to school, but also pointing like fingers at where they should be and blaming the ruling class and the government for failing to, to deal with these demands for ages and reiterating the importance of these demands. Even after the executive committee of the league said they will stop the strike on Thursday, just before we started recording this episode on Sunday, the coalition of Lebanese University students released a statement saying we are against this because we we care about the demands that we're advancing and they called on students to go and uh, protest at the league while the council is hap- the council meeting is happening on Tuesday to pressure it to bring it to a general assembly vote, hoping that the general assembly would be in favor of continuing the strike. So why can can you explain to me though why this is important? Because from my perspective, I see two groups of students, and it seems like okay, the students are split. There's the students that are like you say, like with the professors in favor of the strike, and then there are there are the other students who are protesting, saying, "Oh no, like just we just want to graduate, or we just want to take our classes, we just want to learn." Why are you putting us in the middle here? So why is it so important that like we have this other side on the on the students? Because if students are only concerned about their own academic year this year and they are not mobilized based on the interests of the university on the long term, then this is self-destructive for them first. And then second, this is this is an opportunity for the revival of the politicized student movement that we used to have. 
uh, that create the Lebanese University in the first place in the 1950s. The Lebanese University is a political achievement in itself, and they, it's it's kind of we will talk about it in a second. It's marginalization and uh, cutting its budget and making it less and less relevant and capable to be a good strong university is basically the anti-project to that they, they, it has a lot of political significance and also it has a lot of you know uh, significance in terms of social justice because it's the only public university you have no other option for almost free education in Lebanon and nothing even cheap that is ba- like uh, barely as good as the Lebanese University so so basically if I understand you right you always have these students who are gonna say oh just come back to class we just want to learn that is just there all the time. But what's not always there is sort of this these politically aware students. Yeah. And that's something that used to exist and sort of died out of existence for a long time, or largely died out of existence for a long time, and now seems to be back. Not not necessarily in force, but like in a larger force than it was before. Yeah. And this political consciousness, in my opinion, among this generation is very, very important because these are the people who will either become, you know, politically involved kind of uh, activists or members of society or will be co-opted by the sectarian and political groups that are ruling the country. So, or maybe emigrating. But anyway, uh, it's very important that this generation or this part of the population is mobilized. Okay, so you, you mentioned earlier the marginalization of the university, of Lebanese University. Just to give you an idea, the budget in 2018 for Lebanese University was 418 billion pounds, and that was cut down to 381 billion pounds for this year. Uh, If you, as you also mentioned, uh, state contributions to LU uh, professors, uh, their mutual fund was also cut by 10%. If you add those cuts together, it's about a a $27 million cut, mostly on the side of just like the Lebanese University is getting a lot less money. Yeah, so the budget that we have now, $254 million, is supposed to be covering the cost of teaching around 85,000 students currently enrolled at the Lebanese University, which means that we have $3,000 per student, which is a very low amount compared to uh, countries with similar or slightly higher uh, status of development. And it's basically three times less than what an average OECD country spends. So, you know, how will you achieve real development, real social and economic development, if you're not investing in the only public university that we have? While we know that, you know, good jobs are the things that pull people up in terms of livelihood and good jobs are more and more dependent on good education and affordable education. But this marginalization that we're talking about of the Lebanese university is not happening, you know, in a vacuum just because the politicians don't care about the Lebanese university. It's not the whole story. In parallel, we have a big boom of private universities. The number of private universities increasing dramatically after since the 90s, uh, but also private universities kind of controlling the academic scene in Lebanon to a certain extent, and mainly the American University of Beirut in terms of, for example, research production. They, uh, the AUB produces more than 50%, 56% of research, while the Lebanese University produces 14%. And we're talking about a much bigger university, right? LU is much bigger than AUB, and yet it produces much less research, partly due to investments. And there are several kinds of like private universities in Lebanon. We have, you know, the big fancy ones like uh, AUB and LAU and Université Saint-Joseph, USG. 
and Balamand, Beirut Arab University to a lesser extent, but these are like the big names. But you also have a lot of universities that you can't even, you know, remember. There's, there's like 36 private universities in total, right? It's a huge number. And 62% of total students in Lebanon, they go to private universities. So basically, if you're looking for, you know, good quality programs and you can't get into the Lebanese university, you're ch- you don't have a lot of choices. You either go to a fancy university that is comp- not affordable at all or to kind of a low standard but cheaper private university. And I'll give you kind of the numbers to, to just put it in context. Between 2013 and 2017, the uh, the tuition fees of the top private universities incru- increased by 15 to 22%. That's in four years, 15 to 22% increase in tuition fees. Now the rates are just incredible in some of them. At AUB, uh, probably the most expensive one, social sciences or humanities, which is su- supposed to be the cheapest thing to study at the undergraduate level. Students now have to pay more than $21,000 for a full academic year. That's 30 credits without summer courses. And if you're studying something like engineering or financial economics, it goes up to around $26,000 per year. So if you're studying engineering with four full years of $26,000, we're talking about a huge amount of money that literally, I don't know, maybe the top 3% of the population can afford. And so we have a lot of students going in debt, but also it's clear that it's making this university, as an example, it's making extremely exclusive because $26,000, for example, is almost five times the total amount of annual salaries you would get as a minimum wage worker. And uh, 70% of the Lebanese population is making less than $10,000 a year. So you need the total salaries of two and a half years if you don't eat or drink and have shelter or spend any money or anything else, two and a half years of annual salaries in order to pay for one year of tuition for your kid, it's just ridiculous. And on the other hand, the small private universities uh, have really no visible uh, like uh, academic standards uh, in terms of quality of education. A lot of them don't, at least, they don't have proper econ- academic environment. No one is producing research, so... And a lot of fields, this means that education is kind of meaningless because what are you doing with it if you're not producing research? And it's more like, you know, commercial entities. You go in, you pay the money that you owe, and then you get into some kind of pseudo-academic programs and you finish with a degree. And a lot of them, and we hear a lot of rumors, but also quite confirmed rumors, that a lot of students are not even attending the courses and just paying for the degree and getting fake degree, like real degrees, just by paying money. So it seems that the situation is basically, if you're rich, you get quite good education. If you're working class, you're stuck, you're stuck between a marginalized Lebanese university and a bad, cheap private education. And this system kind of reproduces itself in terms of elitism, right? Because if, you're, if you go to AUB or to LAU or whatever you get, uh, you get more social capital. You meet, you meet people that will open new doors for you. You get more opportunities and you get more soft skills, etc., and then you just get better jobs, and this reproduces itself. Uh, while if you go to these cheaper and worse universities, you will not get a lot of opportunities. But that's that's not the only thing, right? Like the, I think it's it's very interesting the class side of things. But there's also this bizarre sectarianism aspect to the private universities as well, right? Yeah, I mean something that is not told as one story should be because. The Lebanese university is being marginalized while these private universities are booming. And who these, do these private universities belong to? They belong to political or religious institutions. And 
if you look just at the numbers, you have four universities affiliated with uh, Shia Muslim organizations. For example, one is, is for Hezbollah, Al Ma'arif, another is for the Higher Islamic Shiite Council, or for Mabarrat, or so for the Birri family, Finnish University. The Sunnis have their own, Rafiq Hariri University, you know, who it belongs to, Azm University, which happens to have the same name as uh, Najib Miqati's political party. Uh, I, I wonder who owns that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> very vague, very, you know, discreet. Um, the biggest private university in Lebanon in terms of the number of few students is the Lebanese International University. Which is weird. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's really weird. It's, it's very cheap um, to attend. And, uh, you know, they have better better like facilities than other universities. So it's attracting a lot of students and they have so many branches. So uh, it's expanding a lot. And I think they have more than 25 or 27,000 students. It's the biggest private university in terms of number of students and also we have a university for the Karami family in Tripoli very and very quickly I just want to mention LIU is also infamous for another reason and that is uh, who owns it uh, Abdul Rahim Murad who is a, an MP the father of current minister Hassan Murad he he owns it but he also opened it back when he was minister of education so basically if you go back into the record which I did before the podcast and you look at it it's his signature on the decree saying you can open up a university called Lebanese International University now he doesn't technically own it right it's like a charitable organization affiliated with him but still uh, but he's he, the president and his uh, and Hassan Murad is the vice president yeah 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 and then also this is for the Muslims and the Christians have their own universities Christian institutions uh, affiliated with the Christian church uh, with the Maronite church specifically they are behind a lot of universities. Uh, University of San Jose for crea- was created by the Jesuits. Uh, you have NDU, uh, University Antonin and Babda, Isaac, Sajas, Sacred Family University in Batroun. All of these universities are related or affiliated to the Maronite Church in one way or another. And the Orthodox have Balamand University. So it's basically a full sectarian distribution of universities. And while they were giving licenses, I'm sure this was one of the things they took into consideration. How much, how many universities for each group or sect. So it gives an idea of what this boom in private universities means politically and socially. So it's really, you know, bizarre at first blush that that's how things work but then it sort of makes sense the the logic of sectarianism in lebanon seeps into literally everything and it has seeped into like private education private uh, university education here in a very noticeable way not only do you have that sectarianism but you also then have like just the the money of it right and the politicians and so if you have all these politicians making money off of their private universities. Well, when it comes to vote for funding their competitor, Lebanese University, what are they going to do? Mm -hmm. So the marginalization of the Lebanese University is not a coincidence in this context. And we cannot be surprised that it's not their priority, if not, you know, their project. Um, Right. And, 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 And in this case, we see like a very nice dovetailing between like sectarianism and just like capitalistic enterprise, right? Like yeah, one reinforces the other. Because universities are supposed to be in non-profit institutions, but it's not really the case, right? They they are always trying to make bigger, bigger, bigger and bigger revenues and trying to expand more and more. But as you, as you're saying, this is a, a very political thing, and uh, it's these universities should be also seen as another 
very smart tool in this clientele system that we always talk about in this podcast between political leaders and the followers and the supporters uh, because you know if it if it takes a big deal to get someone into the Lebanese university you know if they can't pass the exam because some exams are so difficult to pass you might as well just give them a degree from your own university it doesn't cost you a lot and um, they will be you know strong supporters for a long time so it's another strong clientele tool but to me, the scary thing about this whole thing about sectarian distribution of and private education, the kind of sectarian privatization of education, if we want to, of higher education, uh, this is the way of, of summarizing what's happening, is that, you know, what kind of a post-Civil War project is this? More students from specific religious backgrounds going into the universities from these same backgrounds managed by institutions affiliated with politicians or religious organizations from the same religious group. That's insane, you know. Where is integration going to happen if Christian students born in June will go to the to Isaac and Kaslik and it's 95% Christians? What kind of a vision is this for the Lebanese society? It's more and more sectarian divisions and even like geographically clear sectarian divisions preventing this as opposed to the university, especially the public university being a space where people would come, integrate, interact with each other from completely different backgrounds and the space where you can build kind of a highly educated post-sectarian or secular kind of elite, young elite. Uh, this is what the university as a as a big institution, a public university, should be doing in a context of post-war reconstruction and reconciliation. But this is not the main project that carried out by the, by the ruling elite. Right, right. And, and what I see there, that that function is sort of carried out more by like AUB, for instance, which is was founded by Christians and everything, but today is basically just like elite. Elite people of all different sects will go to it, and yeah, so they will get that, you know, that experience of, you know, meeting people from other backgrounds with different beliefs and different values, but as as you've pointed out, like, it, it costs a lot to get into there, and so you've got this, like, very upper crust of elite that's getting this, but basically nobody else is getting this, and in Lebanese University even... We're talking about sectarian outside of Lebanese University, but even inside of Lebanese University, uh, like the logic of sectarianism penetrates that as well, right? It, it It's not immune from this. You, I mean, very famously, Lebanese University is divided, you know, between Muslims and Christians, whatever the branch one and branch two or, or whatever you call it. Uh, and, and this goes even further down into faculties and, uh, and, and students themselves, right? Exactly, because, you know, the deans of the faculties are chosen by political leaders, but also, as you're saying, in terms of student life and student activities, it's controlled by student by political groups in many cases, in very rude ways. Like, for example, uh, the the political group controlling what kind of student activities can happen on campus. Uh, if, for example, Hezbollah controls one uh, specific faculty, they would prevent students from having music concerts that include singing because to them this is haram. Or uh, Amal movement completely dominating the political uh, political activities or student activism in another one. And students have to, yeah, they are socialized. They are going into university, becoming adults in this kind of environment. How do we expect them to be interested in politics or hopeful about, you know, a good political, ch- good political change in the country at all? If they are in their universities and every time they want to do any kind of event, there's some political uh, bullshit preventing them from just being active citizens yeah yeah so if, if you are a believer in like 
public universities as like a public good and and a and a place for people of multiple backgrounds to come and you know sort sort of learn from each other and create something you know post sectarian. Well, then Lebanese University is the obvious candidate, but they are fighting on all fronts. They're fighting this uh, encroachment from outside, from these private universities that are sectarianized and politicized uh, and, and have this, you know, profit motive. And then they're also fighting just from the inside, the, you know, the, the, the political parties and politicians that have been able to sort of get control of certain faculties or whatever. I, I, it leads me to think that where's the hope? Where is the hope for Lebanese University in, in, with all of these all of, because all of the dynamics seem to be pointing against it with the possible exception of what you were talking about earlier, you know, the, the, the faculty and student movements. Yeah, I mean, and this is the for me, this is the hope people who are kind of affiliated with political groups that are ruling the country, pressuring those groups to change their policy on the Lebanese University is a total priority because in the end, the overwhelming majority of the Lebanese will not be and are not able to pay for education uh, and they want good respected education good degrees for for them and their kids so they will this is a very very self-evident demand more funding in the Lebanese university rather than less like they have been demanding doubling the funding and now they're cutting it by 27 million dollars 27 million dollars that's a lot of students affected thousands of students affect directly affected so the, to me, the hope is in students and in faculty going against the official policies of their political groups and saying, no, this is a red line for us. The Lebanese University is a project that unites all Lebanese people be behind it because it's a project that is about, you know, the future rather than uh, entrenching the, the, the visions of the past. So let's hope that this is you know this is consistent and that we see more and more mobilization and more importantly continuous organi organizing among students to have a strong student movement that is politically significant and of course we're going to see a big test of this this week when they meet to to see what happens with the strike or not whether it continues or not so that that's the reason why you should be watching this story this week and beyond potentially because there it's there's a lot more at stake than just like some students not being able to take exams yeah exactly okay well that's all the time we have for this week but we will be back next week with another episode uh until then i'm benjamin red i'm nizar hassan and this has been the lebanese politics podcast Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.